Hi, everybody. Welcome to Academics of PA. I'm here with Bruce McDonald. Hey, how's it going? Great. We're glad you're here. And then we have our wonderful guest, Dr. Mary Guy. Thank you so much for being here. And Bruce, do you want to say a few words about Dr. Mary Guy? Sure. Uh, Dr. Guy, or am I allowed to call you Mary? Feels a little weird since I knew you from FSU. You're, you are free to call me Mary, yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, in that case, Mary is a professor at the School of Public Affairs at UC Denver. Her and I go back a little bit of a ways from her time at FSU, but she is formerly the MPA director out at UC Denver and does some really awesome work on emotional labor. So thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. I wanted to start off because you have a little bit different of a background than everybody else we've talked to so far. That is, your background is in counseling, which I think is remarkably fascinating, but it is also different from public administration. So I wanted to ask kind of why you went into counseling and then how you made that switch from being a counselor over into a public administration scholar. You know, it's an interesting story that I think about quite a lot. And that is that I did not come into the academy in the normal way. I did not come in straight from uh, undergraduate school or a master's degree. I, I worked as a practitioner. So I describe myself as having had prior lives. And my first graduate degree was in rehabilitation counseling. Um, I had gone through my, uh, my undergraduate work was a major in psychology with a minor in sociology. And then I took a first master's degree in rehabilitation counseling. And immediately after that, I worked for the Georgia Department of Vocational Rehabilitation for several years. And interestingly, that was back in the 70s. And it was, I was a beneficiary of affirmative action. Uh, up to my entry in the particular department where I was working, they had had no women counselors. That was a man's job and had been for generations. And uh, the office knew that they needed to have, quote, a woman. And so I got the job. And it, it, it taught me a lot about gender relations, and it taught me a lot about public service. Uh, from uh, I worked in that position for three years, and then I moved to the South Carolina Depart Department of Mental Health, worked as a counselor there, and then took a second master's degree in psychology, and then worked as a psychologist for the Department of Mental Health until I was pretty convinced that simply doing one-on-one -on -one work really wasn't making a lasting difference because I had worked in it long enough to see the same clients I had worked with one year come back several years later with similar problems. So I became very interested in program evaluation to asking the question, what programs work and what are the variables that in that case, hospital administration could manipulate in terms of treatment teams and modalities to really make more of a difference. At the same time I was doing that, then I also became sort of bored and I wanted to, I liked, I liked graduate school. And so I started taking courses on a part-time basis and because I had, I had entered my career in public service, I've always believed that that's the real value of what a career is like. A, a career in business has never interested me. Not, I, it seems to me to be a waste of time because I like making a difference in people's lives and, and I like making a difference in the community. So I would work at the Department of Mental Health which was on one end of the main street in Columbia, South Carolina. And then I would, you know, just sneak away in the daytime or in the evenings and take classes at the University of South Carolina. And again, you know, there was, there was one woman on the public administration faculty while I was there. There were two of us, two women in the entire doctoral program. And it, it was interesting that the the one woman on the faculty was really very supportive of me and, and encouraged me when I completed the degree to look for an academic job. That had never been my goal, but I thought to myself, maybe I'll give it a shot. And, and it was largely at her urging, that was Marcia Wicker, that I did that. And I told myself when I, when I took the academic leap 
that if I didn't like it, I could always go back to a real job. Well, I took, I made that academic leap and you know, I just, I've never looked back. I love this work. And I tell my students, being an academic, being able to ask questions that matter and pursue answers to those is, to me, it's the most rewarding way to spend a career. So I, I, I have loved my life as an academic, and it has been very rewarding for me. Such a lovely sentiment. I want to ask a question about that early program evaluation experience. How did other counselors feel about you trying to find a better way to do their job? There was an eagerness. The turnover among, you know, counselors or, you know, the youngest therapists were that they would work about three years and then say, I'm seeing the same people, I'm doing the same thing. So that became sort of a major outpoint for people and professionals. And for me, it, you know, I wanted to continue working in mental health, but, but I, I wanted to make a, be able to make more of a difference. So it, it, was, it was very well received. Oh, that's great. That's good to hear. <laughs> I was worried they'd be resistant. No. Well, it, it, and if they were, they, those were not the ones I was speaking to. So, <laughs> it, you know, there's so, there, so much of our career has to be spent surrounding ourselves with people who help us be better than we are and people who help us think more broadly or think more deeply about questions that matter to us. So that was my case then, talking with people who also wanted to know how to do their work better to make, you know, to make it more worthwhile. And I do the same thing in my research now. I, I tell my students it's so important to go to conferences and to, to build intellectual networks with people, not just in your own you know, very small domain who work only one kind of research questions, but to also bridge questions and develop relationships with people who work in, in various other perspectives of the field, because that's how we make our own work richer and deeper. And that's how we test our ideas in a way where we really can move it a little bit forward. So maybe you can talk a little bit about your early academic network, how you started to build that network and build those ideas that you've become to be known for? Well, interestingly, I wrote a dissertation on uh, organizational dynamics and team building and, con you know, and the, identifying the variables that correlate with conflict versus agreement in, in treatment teams. And for the first several years, I was writing a lot about organizational conflict. And, and I was doing that, and have, it's always been sort of a theme of mine, and understanding organizational architecture and you know, how, it, how it affects gender relations, how it affects who gets the plum jobs, how it affects social equity you know, in terms of outcomes of public programs and so forth. But an interesting, wonderful bump in the road happened in the late 80s when Naomi Lin, who had been one of the few women political scientists studying public administration, had been offered an opportunity to contribute a chapter to what then was the Hayes and Kearney uh, personnel reader. Now it's Cogburn, Hayes and Kearney, I think. But she had been asked to write, to write a chapter on gender and women in public administration. And she had just taken the deanship position at Georgia State. And she said she didn't have time. She knew me through ASPA. And she asked me if I would be interested in writing that chapter. And I jumped at the opportunity. And I've been writing about gender ever since. So, I mean, what, what happened is, again, just because of the networks, and in that case, it was a network side started developing through ASPA that Naomi knew me, I knew her, and, and she literally opened a door for me and I was smart enough to walk through it. And so that started my work in gender. And right at a time when there was a readiness among journal editors to 
pay attention to gender and to publish papers on that. And it, by that time, by the late 80s, early 90s, it was safe for women academics and public administration to write about gender. Before then, there had been great reluctance because the the word to any woman graduate student was don't write about gender because you won't get tenured if you do. Now, that's not the case anymore. It's been a wonderful change. But I was writing about gender and 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 I was really flummoxed by the late 90s and early 2000s at how persistent the the pay inequity was. And I kept looking for variables that would help to explain it. Because in the 70s and 80s, the excuse was always that women didn't have graduate degrees, but men did, and therefore men had more education, and therefore they would be paid more. Well, as the tide was turning and more women were earning those master's degrees, in fact, they still were not being paid the same as their male peers. So I kept pushing and probing and looking around the corner to try to understand what that was. And one day I was preparing a lecture for an HR class and I ran across a sociology journal that contained a symposium on emotional labor. And the articles were focusing on the kind of emotional labor that women are expected to do. Well, I'd read that and I thought, aha, this may be the key that will unlock the question about women, why women are always paid less. So my earliest work in emotional labor was looking at the gender differential. And then I started speaking to audiences. And with each audience I would speak to, after I had made my presentations and talking about how important it was, you know, for women to be nurturant and, you know, so forth, that there'd be a man at the back of the room who would raise his hand and say, well, you know, I do emotional labor too. And I became thoughtful about that and realized, in fact, emotional labor is not the key that unlocks the question to why women are paid less. Women are simply paid less because they're women, period. That men perform emotional labor, their expectations for men is different than the expectations for women, where women are expected to be nurturant, and if not, they'll be penalized. Men are expected to be self-confident and assertive and if they're nurturant, they get an extra bonus for that. So it, it plays out differently because it is so contextual. But as you see, one question led to another, led to another. And now I write very comfortably about gender. And I write very comfortably about emotional labor. And I write very comfortably about organizational dynamics. So it's my life has been this wonderful blend for one fascinating question has led to the next and led to the next. So you mentioned that the academy is now very accepting of public administration scholars writing about gender. Can you talk a little bit about what you think that evolution was? Like what happened in universities? What happened at journals that started to make us appreciate that research versus stay away from it? Well, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, it's that women finally have been able to get into the academy. There are enough women in departments, and they're, you know, that, in fact, their voice matters. When you are, like, when I started my career, where each department would have one woman faculty member, that's, you know, because every department thought they should have a woman, but one was enough. In fact, the woman had no voice. She basically had to be like a man and write pursue research questions that men valued because it was men sitting in judgment of her at the pre-tenure review and at the tenure review. Well, there are now, you know, our master's students are well over 50% women. We've seen tremendous strides in that regard. It's now rare to find a public administration department that has only one woman faculty member. As women have gained a toehold in the workplace, across the board, as well as the academy, there has been a greater appreciation for addressing not just questions and framing questions, not just the way that makes sense to men, but also doing it in a way that makes sense to women. Okay, one more on this topic. 
from my understanding, and this could possibly not be true, women in academia are still paid less. And there has been a whole conversation about an expectance that we do more of the emotional labor within the university. So service. Is that, do you know if that's true? And why do you think it's still around? What I know, because universities are just like every other organization. All of the values that are embedded in them are a function of the external environment. And what we know, just what we know just with teaching evaluations, the course evaluations that students complete at the end of a term. If, if, a, if a male instructor is also supportive and nurturant, he gets like double tight. That's like bonus scores for him. On the other hand, if a woman fails to be nurturant and supportive, she is penalized tremendously. In other words, a woman instructor cannot behave like a male instructor and, and, and achieve the same student evaluations. It just doesn't happen because of the cultural expectations for what is a proper woman's behavior and what is a proper man's behavior. It's so embedded. I get that. If it's that embedded, is there anything that you think that new scholars, new academics can do to help kind of change that dynamic? I know what I wish would happen, and what I wish would happen is that deans and department heads would open their eyes to this, and for those women faculty who have students lined up outside their door because they have not only, you know, intellectual questions they want to ask about the course, they're also going to the person whom they perceive will be fairly supportive and nurturant to them. For the women faculty who are called upon to do that advising, you know, and it may not even be on a formal basis, but the students will seek out the women to speak to. And what mm -hmm. happens then is the women faculty are doing double time and they're getting no credit for it whatsoever. So one thing certainly for department heads to do is appreciate the role that those faculty are doing when they are doing double time. It's also important for those people to bring the work that they do to the awareness of the department head. You know, when you write your annual report, it's otherwise it is invisible work. It is work that, as Joyce Fletcher tells us in Disappearing Acts, it is work that gets disappeared. It's the same kind of work in any teams where the, there's usually someone, and oftentimes it's the woman on the team who who is expected to sort of smooth those ruffled feathers and, you know, stop in and talk with different colleagues and sort of keep, keep everybody, you know, working smoothly together. There's an art to that. And there is, that's, that's emotive skill, but so many times it falls on the woman to do that. And everyone else literally turns their collective head, pays no attention to it. She doesn't get paid anything for it. And it's, it's double work. Your academic work allows you to be so knowledgeable about the dynamics of any organization and university organization. I have to ask, are people nervous at faculty meetings <laughs> with you? <laughs> like, uh, she's going to put this in a book. I don't know. You would have to ask them. <laughs> I know at FSU, all the PhD students were nervous around you, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I well know. right. And like you, you see inside their heads a little bit, right? <laughs> well, perhaps so. I, I am a student of human nature. I, it fascinates me. It just fascinates me. And so I do pay attention to it. And how I come across, I, I, I don't know. You know, I've learned to, to not worry about that a whole lot. Well, so you've talked a little bit about your mentors and certainly your career in studying how to interact with people well. It, how do you bring that to your mentees? What are some of the things that you really try to do in that relationship? You know, I, I, I'm glad you asked that because at this point in my career, my interest is in my legacy and, and, 
and those lessons I can give to my doctoral students so that they don't have to learn lessons the hard way. And I, 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 I try with each student to convince them and help them see how it's in their interest to find research questions that they care passionately about because otherwise people go dry. And, and, and I've hated to see that, but I've seen students over the years who, you know, they you know, think that there's some, either they find a data set and they just want to plumb through it and get that work done, but they never learn how to ask a question they care about in a way that it will stay alive in their heart so that they can then apply their head to it. So I, I talk a lot about passion. You know, our, our work as scholars is both science and art. And I want each of my students to go out starting their academic careers, understanding this, loving the science of it, the knowingness of it, and also loving the art of it and learning who they are just by taking one step at a time and going through the thrills of acceptance of a paper and going through the heartbreak of getting a rejection and knowing how to deal with that and then move forward. So I'm, I, my most important thing is, I think, when I'm training doctoral students is it, my job is to help them reach deep inside themselves and find what they really care about. And then to help them hone and shape and sculpt it so that it fits within the theories of our field and they find their niche in it. Can you speak to how you might approach that when what they are interested in is going to be something that the field itself might not necessarily care about? So you had mentioned earlier, back in the 70s and 80s, when you first kind of got into public administration, nobody really talked about gender issues, but that was still an interest to you. So not a gender issue per se now, but if there's another issue that comes up that a student might be interested in that the field doesn't pay that much attention to or care about, how would you kind of guide them? I'm, I'm finding that social equity becomes a framework for really being able to advance democracy. And, and it serves as a framework that so many of our questions that, that we feel passionately about can be addressed and fleshed out. You know, we've, I have students now working on dissertations on LGBTQ representation and federal agencies. I have students working on, you know, questions dealing with public transit and understanding that those where the train stops are in urban train systems really affects who, you know, who that's built, who the system is built for, for training it. If, if all the train stops are right by where the employers are, that's one thing. If those train stops are where the grocery stores and where the pediatricians' offices are and the daycare centers are, then that tells you it's really, you know, built with different considerations in mind. So there are so many ways to look at our public infrastructure and then ask ourselves, in whose advantage is this? And what, what would make it a more just system? So I am finding and I am loving the interest I am seeing in social equity. I, I think it can really help us move the whole field toward asking that important question of how can we do democracy better? We've talked a little bit about sort of big ideas in public administration. Uh, there, the social equity piece being critically important and very thoughtful. Any other big themes you wish we would return to or start to talk about more? You know, I am struck with how the, the quandaries of today are almost identical to the quandaries of 100 years ago. And there have been so many times that I have looped back to Jane Addams and Mary Parker Follett and, and reread their work to see that you know, they were talking about citizen engagement, you know, and how to prevent people from bowling alone. It's, it occurs to me that in our chase for citation counts, we need not to delude ourselves into thinking that, you know, we're having new ideas. Ideas and water are the same. They're both recycled. There are no new ideas. There's no new water. It's, it's re our challenge is to take the ideas we have and package them in a way 
that speak to today's and tomorrow's problems, but to be wise enough to root them and to understand the thinking that has gone into them from years, decades, and generations prior. That's why it's so important to really understand our literature. I, I am very disappointed to see so many in the field just chasing citation counts when I'm afraid there's very little relationship between citation counts and good ideas. I hope that the field will take lean back and take a, a big look at what is the purpose of this field to do democracy better, to do government better, and, and then say, what questions can we ask that can help move us forward? It's, it's so easy to become blinded by what we see as today's pressures. Well, so talk about those. What do you think are those today's pressures? Well, today's pressures are this crazy chase just, just to get published. So we're publishing a lot of junk. We're publishing a lot of stuff that's, that's just really not worthwhile. And the value of education and the value of knowledge and the value of science is not in quantity, it's in quality. I, I hope that we can, again, sort of step back and say, what is it we're trying to achieve? And let go of those things that really aren't achieving them. I will tell you this. I, I can sense that we are on the verge of being much, much smarter about, how, about our, our methods. That certainly I came of age in a time when, you know, quantitative techniques were the absolute king. That's, you know, that was the end all and be all. And then we started saying, well, you know, we really need to have words. We really want to understand the depth of something. So then we went to mixed methods and thought, well, maybe, you know, this will, do, will be it. But it's, we have such necessity for so many different kinds of tools, whether it's historical research, whether it's just deep, thoughtful interviews, whether it's content analysis, whether it's network analysis, whether it's, you know, really sophisticated hierarchical modeling, whatever it is, I tell my students, I want them to leave this program with a big toolbox that is equipped with, with a, a vast panorama of tools so that it's their question that drives the research, not the tool they're going to use that drives the question they ask. And I think I'm not alone in this. I sense more people getting to this point of saying, let's be smarter about the questions we ask. Let's be smarter about accepting diverse methods. Well, I think it's interesting you bring that up because that's something that every guest we have had has brought up on their own in some some kind of context, whether it is viewing that we have too much of a heavy reliance on the quantitative methods or that we have forgotten the importance of the question by focusing entirely on just choosing the most kind of interesting method possible. Right. To my point, I mean, I, I, I sense that, that we're all sort of, we've all kind of walked up to this point and we're looking at one another going, yep, Yep, we made a wrong turn back there. So let, let's be smarter about it. Well, and so other than being a mentor to your students to do this better and the work the deans have to do too, but what else could we be doing to make sure public administration is a relevant, thoughtful field? We must always be aware that it is an applied field. It is an applied field by design in which we borrow from the entire panoply of social sciences and certainly civil engineering and, and quantum physics in terms of our language at this point, because we're dealing with superposition, you know, mutually exclusive ideas that we have to deal with simultaneously. We must be relevant if our research cannot be used to inform practice and to help practitioners, then we need to think twice about why we are doing it. That's, that's our job. I, we are translators. We should be translators where we ask an interesting question and then we determine the answer or the indicators in a, and we interpret that in a way that we can talk to a practitioner and say, 
Well, this is what I've learned about, in my case, emotional labor. So I, I'm spending a lot of time talking to HR practitioners, and I'm saying, this is the way to build your job descriptions, you know, so that you can screen people for the emotive skills. This is the way to design your performance appraisals so that you can reward people who have good emotive skills. This is the way to do a job analysis so that you can identify all that goes into a job. That is translational research. And when I'm doing that, I know that I'm doing good work because I've applied theory and methods and I'm able to take those findings and speak to practitioners in a way that makes sense to them and helps them solve their problem. I think that's, that's the real magic of public administration. It really can make a difference in the lives of people and in the work that our public service programs do. I think that is a beautiful sentiment. What should we tell PhD students? You need to be a practitioner. You need to do service work. What can we do to help the next generation of academics understand what a true applied field is? Oh, isn't that a good question? I try to stay away from the should kinds of instructions, but I'm telling you, the best students are the ones who at least have had a few years to really understand what it feels like to work a real job, work an eight to five job and deal with the pressures and the organizational conflicts and the demands and, and get what it, understand what it feels like viscerally when you don't have the budget to do what your mission says you do and you still have to figure out how to do it as well as you can. It's, there's an honesty to practice that is so easily overlooked when we just read our journal articles and do more research. So it's, it, internships are very valuable. And an, a, another way to learn, and I continue to learn every semester I teach, I learn from my students. I love teaching MPA students because most of them are working while they're taking their classes. And I have them tell me their stories and it keeps me fresh and it keeps me honest. And I tell my, my doctoral students to do the same thing. Pay attention to what your students say. Be open to them because we will continue to learn. I, my students are my best teachers. And I think that is what it is for all of us if we continue to learn. We can't really be good scholars if we don't continue to learn from the ground up. Yeah. For a lot of people who are in academia, the opportunity to kind of go back and start from scratch and get those few years of experience first is definitely going to be something that's difficult. But there are different opportunities, whether it's to go work for an agency for a semester or to engage on a much more daily level by doing projects or service learning projects with different community organizations. Do you see those kind of as being a beneficial substitute for somebody who didn't have that initial experience first? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there used to be an exchange, scholar exchange program with the Federal Office of Public Management. And I used to see uh, HR experts routinely doing those. I haven't, I don't think that exists anymore. But in the absence of that. It's a so, good idea, though. It is, yes. So <laughs> many of our MPA programs have, you know, require a capstone course where they do a project with an agency. And I learn from that every semester, just from, you know, talking to my student and advising my student on that, but also then interacting with an agency representative. It really helps me stay in tune with what the pressures and the forces are at the street level. So it's, there are many ways to stay in touch with or to get in touch with the street level work that is being done. One of the questions we have been asking many of the people we interview is how they have balanced work and home life. Can you talk a little bit about your, throughout your career, what those pressures have been and how you've managed both? You know, it's, that's hard. It's hard because when you get engaged or when I get engaged in a research project, I really want to go with it total. I don't want to, to break away from it. And, and yet I know to stay fresh, I have to. So throughout my career, 
I've always thought of it as, as sort of sectors of my life, my personal life, my hobby life, and my work life, academic life. So for me, I've always had a hobby. And in, in this case, it was always just, you know, showing, you know, showing dogs at confirmation shows. And it, in other words, it was an outlet that I could spend a weekend at, and it felt like I'd been out of the office for an entire spring break because, you know, two days with people who speak a different language, who have different priorities is really very refreshing. And so it let me move from one world to another. In terms of personal life, it's, it, it's hard when you know you need to be working on that manuscript on a Saturday and on a Sunday and your family wants to be doing something else. And it's, you just, each of us has to sort of figure out what's going to work for us and our particular, the way we live our lives and then stick to it. And it takes a lot of self-discipline. I think writing is lonely. It, it can't be done chatting with somebody. It can be done only by sitting at the keyboard and just banging those keys. So that's, it takes a self-discipline that's, that is an artist's self-discipline to sit there in front of the canvas, literally with your brush and, and make the strokes when it'd be a lot easier to be out, you know, at a, playing volleyball or something. It's, it's, a, it's very unique, but those who succeed in this field are those who learn how to have that balance. The people who don't have a balance, who can't get away from their work, tend to burn out. The, the people who, who can't make themselves get away from their hobby, you know, in order to do the work, never make tenure. It's, it's a balancing act. And there, there are times when it would seem to be easier to have the real job, the eight to five job where somebody else sets your boundaries. But in fact, it takes, that takes your freedom away. So the, the, the freedom of setting our own boundaries is incredibly burdensome until you figure it out. And I've been doing this game a long, long time, and there are still times when I have a hard time figuring it out. It's, it's a struggle. Do you think that struggles become kind of more prominent in more recent years as the push for more journal articles to, in order to get tenure, as the push for citation counts has started to increase? I think that's a problem. I think it takes the joy away. Having to pump out more pieces just because people are counting numbers takes the joy and the thrill away from getting that hit, getting that acceptance you know, on a piece that you're really proud of. When, when you're pumping out so many pieces, in fact, A, it, it's not very good work. Two, you're going to forget about the piece that was accepted three months ago because you just got a piece that was accepted today. It takes the thrill away. It's, it is a mistake for us to think that more is better. I think we have to stop and say, what are the questions that matter? How can we frame them in a way that anyone's going to read this? Because there are people citing one another now and they're never reading one another's work. They're just picking up those sites and plop, plopping them in, in at the end of the article. And it's, it's not good work. Well, and it doesn't leave that time to engage or talk about it, what it means or to work towards that next question, right? Because it just yes. keep doing it. It's meaning that we should always keep foremost. It is the meaning of our research. It is the meaning of our field. And it is the question of, is this work worthwhile? And that's, we have to be thoughtful about it. It's, it's a, in one way, it's just easy to do brainless pumping out stuff, you know, do three different cuts and three different regression, you know, models on something. And, and when it's all done, Frankly, it wasn't worth doing. That's how I feel about most of what I do. <laughs> well, then, then grab a hold of a piece that you really liked and build on that. No, I like that advice. So one follow-up to it, though, and thinking about an audience of PhD students, you are still a very prolific scholar. So finishing a project, sticking it through till you 
find what is meaningful about it. How do you do that? You know, it's the, the internet has made it so easy to develop intellectual soulmates around the globe such that if you feel you've pretty much exhausted a particular question in a particular domain looking domestically, then ask yourself, what are the cultural contexts of this? What are the cultural correlates of this? And you know, I, I communicate every day with colleagues in China and Pakistan and Australia, and I think nothing of it. I, you know, they respond to me faster than my colleagues do who are at the other end of this hallway, you know, where my office is. It's, it is, we have been, the internet has allowed us to expand our networks to such a point that that also lets us expand the way we ask questions and, and how we can understand all that constellation of correlates that goes with things. It's, it's just really fascinating. I'm engaged right now in international project on emotional labor. And so I and my team have administered surveys in 12 different countries on five different continents. And now we're putting this together in a book and it is way cool. It's, it's because it lets us understand more about cultural context and the, the subtleties of it. And now I'm coming to realize that at one and the same time, culture explains everything and culture explains nothing. Human behavior is so variable that we cannot put it in a can and, and, and have it be tremendously predictable. It's just, it just fascinates me that the more I stare at this, the more pieces I see to it. It's just fascinating. You mentioned before your legacy. What do you think your legacy in public administration will be? Oh, boy. What do you want it to be? What I would like for it to be is that I taught the field about that there is more to work than cognitive work, that in fact, the emotive work is so much a part of people's jobs that we have to pay attention to it. So I'm, I'm hoping several things. One is I hope people say, oh yeah, Mary Guy, I remember her. She wrote about gender. She wrote about social equity. She wrote about organization. She wrote about emotional labor. And, and they will go back to it and look at it the way I go back and look at Mary Parker Follett's work or Jane Addams' work, or I even go back and marvel at Laverne Birchfield. And so I, I, and I hope my students will say, Mary Guy taught me to love what I do and taught me how to love what I do. Well, I think that's a pretty good legacy. From everything I've heard, that's how you'll forever that's be remembered. That's how I'm going down? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but... You're, you must be pretty thoughtful about this, that your legacy does match your hope for it. Well, that's my goal. You know, it, it, here's the really wonderful thing about being at this point in my career. And that is that I do think a lot about this. It's the phases of our life, you know, bring different interests and, and different things we think about as we get through our day and then we look at yesterday and wonder. And, and I'm at a point now where I look back and I look at the, this path of my life and, and I'm thinking, this is just way cool. This was just way cool. And, and I want others to get to the point where I am now and have the same good feeling that they've had a way cool life. So I do have to ask one thing. Uh, about a year or so ago, I was watching TV, and it was a dog show, and I'm pretty sure that was you on the front row. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, that, was the, that was at the Garden, Westminster Kennel Club show. That's part of my hobby. That's, that's a show. That's the most prestigious dog show in the nation, and, or actually around the world, and it's held every February in New York City. And so for 40 years... I have been going to the Westminster Kennel Club show as a busman's holiday. I've never gone there to show my own dog. I go up just to see the most beautiful, beautiful dogs in this nation. And, and I love it. And I, you know, so over the years I've created friendships there and I always 
you know, get, get myself a treat to a Broadway show. And I, I have my own, I have my routine and I don't care what's happening at the office. I don't care what classes I'm teaching. I find a way to get away and everybody knows that about me. And that's, that's where I am. I'm at the garden in February. Simple as that. What kind of dogs? Well, I've always had been showing Bernese mountain dogs. You know, it's a just a big, handsome. I'll be Googling that in a moment. <laughs> but that's, you know, but I, I, I love all show dogs. I love the hobby of it. It's just because it has been so good for my mental health. It has given me an outlet that's different from work. And it's just, it's been, and I tell my students, you know, if you have a, a hobby, love it and hold on to it. Because when you get that rejection on a paper that you really thought was great, you need some way to get your head away from that before you go back to it, repair the paper and get it out again. And a hobby that you can just pour yourself into for a day or two really helps you remove yourself and get perspective on it. Has there ever been a project that you did let go or you didn't finish or didn't work out the way you wanted it to be? Yes. The woman who, the one woman teaching public administration when I was a doctoral student who'd been so supportive of me when, when the rest of the faculty were not quite sure that a woman and a practitioner could ever move into the academic realm. The, the woman was so supportive of me. And after I graduated, we stayed in touch and, and she and I had actually put together a prospectus to do a, a text, an introductory textbook. And then she became ill and died. And I was too blown away to take the project by myself. And so I just forfeited that and, and let it go. And I never felt good about it, but I just, I could not do that. And then recently I've teamed up with Todd. I decided it was time to do an introductory textbook. And I teamed up with my colleague, Todd Ely. And I said, Todd, I want to do this textbook and I need someone to help me on the finance and budget and performance chapters. And so he and I published that book and it, it felt good at two different levels when, when that went to the publisher. And that is that I finally went back and and finished what Marcia and I had started. And, and the other is that I think I understand how I want to teach public administration. And I'm, I'm happy with that book because I think it teaches it the way I see it. And so, but, but that was a case. You know, I, I have co-authored with so many people and in each co-authorship, it, it's interesting. It's, you know, there some authors you become an intellectual soulmate with some authors simply make your work better because they add a piece that you know you don't have and it's it's interesting what co-authoring does but that that has been a very valuable process for me if i can ask how do you choose your co-authors because i know a lot of people work in very different kind of ways so there has to be kind of some trick to finding a good co-author that works well with what your process is going to be Right, exactly. And, you know, I've, I've worked with some co-authors and once and never worked with them again. I've worked with some over and over and over and, and I miss them when I don't have them. And some co-authors, you know, I meet regularly or we have regular conversations and some we simply have cryptic email communications and, and that's it. it. It really varies. It varies by topic. It varies by the nature of our, whether or not we're really on the same wave or whether we're on two different waves and we just need to combine our work to make it good. So it, it varies. But one of the reasons that I, I think going to conferences is so important is it puts us, it lets us put names with faces and it lets us get a sense sort of, of, you know, who's doing what kind of work and, and develop some friendships that may turn into co-authorships. It's, it's just, it's important to always, see who else is working in the field, see who knows what, and, and then sense which people we want to, to you know, do a, a paper together. And, and if that's a good experience, we'll tend to work together again. If it's not a good experience, then it's a one-off. 
Have you ever had an experience, and I won't ask you to name names, where halfway through, you just kind of stop and say, this isn't working in terms of working together? No. I, I, you know, I'm the sort of person that once I start reading a book, even if it's bad, I finish it. If I go to a movie, even if it's bad, I finish it. So if I'm in a project, even if it's going bad, I finish it. Um, but I just, I will never engage it in it again with someone. All right, we're starting to come up on time. Anything else you want to share with what is currently a narrow audience, but I think more will listen because of you. Well, I just, it's so important to care about what we do. And if people find that they're asking questions that aren't interesting, then those aren't the right questions to be asking or they're not being asked the right way. So I I think we need to be prideful on our work, but we also need to be humble on our work. They're water and ideas. They're recycled. They're not new. Our challenge is to repackage those ideas in a way that speaks to today and tomorrow. There are just... There is no field to me more satisfying than public service, whether we're working on it at the street level, whether working at it in the executive office, or whether we're working in it in terms of our scholarship. But that's how we affect people's lives. That's how we can make communities better. That's how we can have more peace and less conflict. That's that's how we can be together on this earth. That's what public service does for us. And it's, I want people to care about it. No, I think that's a great place to end with. Thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate this conversation and everything you have to share with us in the field. Well, good luck putting this all together and making sense out of it. (laughs) I think it's going to be an easy one. Yeah, This will be definitely an easy one to clean up and edit. So thank you for coming on and joining us. 